As I approach this morning's uh, message, I have to admit it's a little fearful, a little trepidation that's, uh, that's there. Because there's no, greater, there's no greater area of opinion that is driven by emotion than the area of music. If that makes sense. The only other area that I have found that people can be more touchy about is if you talk to them specifically about how their children are behaving. Then they're a little more touchy. But uh, music is a highly emotional topic. And in addressing this topic, I'm going to do so first from the standpoint of use of music within the worship of God. And I'll make some comments here and there about the broader application of these basic principles in, into uh, other areas, wider application. But next week, we'll get into the specifics of tackling, quote-unquote, secular music and entertainment. If we really keep in mind the fact that Christians are to be Christians all the time, there's no such thing as a part-time Christian, it should be fairly easy for us to see that these principles apply to every area of our life, not just what occurs in the church. The same principle extends out. Now, everyone has an opinion about what is and what is not good music. Am I true with that? Everybody's got an opinion. It's usually based upon the preference they have for a particular style or styles of music. There are very few that have studied music enough to be able to give a careful critique of what makes up truly good music and what is really nothing more than just popular noise. Okay? There are people that know. They know all the ins and outs, instruction, everything else, and they can tell you. They critique it. Why a certain piece is good and why another one, you may like it, but really it's just noise. Okay? I am not one of those people, by the way. I, I have my own preferences, but I'm not an expert in music. I know some stuff about it, but I'm not one of these experts. Now, music, like in so many other art forms, uh, it has degenerated into a question of personal taste. That's really kind of where art has gone in the last two generations. It is only a matter of what do you like? What's your taste? It doesn't matter how decadent it may be. It doesn't matter how much it may lack in, in form and in balance. It's just whatever you happen to like for whatever reason. And then we have the problem that people often identify so much with the particular style of music that they like. If you criticize that style of music, they take it personally. You're criticizing them and they don't like it. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Right? You make a comment about a certain style and they get mad at you. So I didn't say anything about you, but they identify very much with it. Uh, even we talked about dress last week. People will dress up to look like some musical artist because they want to identify so much with it or what's common uh, dress within that genre of music. Now, when it comes to the use of music in the worship of God, the problems actually compound, it gets worse. Because one of the great misconceptions about worship is that many people equate the music with the worship. They think that is the worship. It's commonly referenced that way. And it's not true. What happens musically within a church is only an aspect of the total worship that we are striving to give to God. Notice I did not say worship experience. Because worship isn't about your experience. It is about what you are giving to God. Okay? But so often people end up looking at what's going on musically within the church 
and they will judge whether you have a good worship service or a not so good or a bad worship service depending on if you played the type of style, the form of music that they like. If you didn't, it was a bad service. They weren't able to worship God because they didn't hear the style that they wanted. So you all know what I'm talking about too. Okay? But that's a great misconception. Scotty Smith, he's a pastor in Franklin, Tennessee, brought out this very point, an article he wrote in Worship Leader magazine some years ago. He entitled the article, Are We Worshiping Worship More Than We Worship God? It's a long title, but it gets the point. And he gave two sample dialogues of people who were responding to styles of worship. In the first, there was a change of format, music format within what they were doing in the service. And this was the comment that one of the, uh, the people in the congregation said. Quote, oh, it's great. We don't sing many of those old, boring hymns anymore. We're into some of those really neat choruses. We even got rid of the pipe organ and replaced it with a rhythm section. You know, a guitar, drum, bass, and the most incredible rack of synthesizers you've ever heard. We have a blast every time we worship now. By the way, have you ever lifted up your hands when you sing to the Lord? It's great. It makes me feel so good. I could never go back to that old way of worshiping. You should visit one of our worship celebrations. You'll be glad you did. Sounds like the person's pretty excited, right? Well, another church made some changes in their service, resulting in the following comment. Quote, Well, finally we have awakened to real worship. We got over our fixation with those mindless choruses and are once again thinking when we sing. I was so bored with those little ditties they called music. And our pastor is at last dignifying the pulpit by wearing a collar and robe. It makes me feel so good to see him each Sunday now. I actually look forward to worship each Lord's Day now, now that we've made all these wonderful changes. We also installed kneeling benches in our pews. It makes me feel so warm and close to God when you read the Apostles' Creed while on your knees. You ought to worship with us. You'll really like it. Now, two completely different styles of music, obviously, from the comments made. But both advocates had the very same problem. It's the exact same problem, even though it's two opposite kinds of styles. The topic here is the worship of God, but all their comments are based in themselves. It's what they like, how they felt, what they enjoyed. But tragically, that has become normal. People claim that the Word of God is their top priority, but what they really want is their ears tickled, as James 4, or excuse me, rather, uh, 2 Timothy 4 tells us. Paul warns us about it. They want to hear what they want to hear. They want to feel good when they walk out. Their true interest is, what is in it for me, rather than, what am I giving to God? If God is not the center of your worship, if he is not the one filling your mind and your heart, if it's not because of what he has done for you that you have gathered together to, uh, to worship, if that's not what's driving your emotions, then don't kid yourself because what you really have here is a religious exercise, not the worship of the creator who made us and all the universe. True worship is not passively sitting in your seat waiting for something to hit you emotionally and then fill you up while those in front entertain you. That's not worship. 
It takes work to block out all the stuff you've been dealing with all week. It takes work for me to even preach with all the stuff I can think of that are, is going on. Things I've got to fix. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You're the same way. Plus, you have the extra stuff is got to get in the car, got to get kids in the car and everything else and get here too. And you get kind of rushed. So one reason we use music is to quiet you down so you can focus in on God, not just the stuff that is a part of life. It takes a lot of concentration. It takes labor to keep your mind occupied and fixated upon what I'm saying during the sermon. That's not easy. Period. In fact, one reason we started using this is just to help you try and do that. Because if you lose track of what I'm saying, and everybody will wander in and out when someone's speaking, at least you can look up here and go, oh, that's what he's talking about, because you were thinking about something else. It takes labor to keep track of what I'm talking about, doesn't it? Right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Just see if you're still with me. It takes labor, right? But true worship means that you are putting God back in his proper position as the center of your life because he is the reason for your existence. You exist for him, not him for you. And yet the very reason that most of the debate about music and worship is because people are focused on themselves, not on God. And so the arguments go back and forth about hymns versus choruses. Which should we have? Uh, organ versus, and piano versus guitar and synthesizer. Uh, should it be a choir or should it be a worship team? And you can go on and on about the debates that go back and forth about music and church. But all those arguments revolve around style, not substance. The debates get heated because people are arguing about what they want rather than what is honoring to God. And what honors God? What honors God is praise given to him from a humble heart. Remember David talked about that in Psalm 51. A broken and contrite spirit is what will praise God. Now let me put it this way. If I may use John Halpin as an example here. Because all of you know John. John disparages how he sings. Okay, He's free about that. And he'll tell you and he doesn't sing very well. Okay, But I'm going to tell you this. There is more true worship if we could have John come up and sing a solo than there is because John's going to do it from his heart as a true offering to God and praise that this is the God he serves. Then it would be if we got one of these top artists to come in here and sing something very beautiful but their mindset is on what's in the honorarium for me and where's my next gig. Does that make sense? It's the heart that God is looking for. And that's why the Psalms talk about make a joyful noise to the Lord. He wants everybody singing whether you think you sing well or not. You're here to worship God, not impress the person next to you or in front of you. You understand that? Okay? That's the purpose of worship. Our focus is on Him. And we need to deal with form versus substance. Music itself is not worship, but it can be a powerful force in true worship or it can be its biggest obstacle. Don Dave Wardson, they're songwriters, they comment that music is form, not content. Content is the message you want to communicate. Form is the manner by which you communicate that message. Content is what you say. Form is how you say it. And unless the proper form is used, the content is not going to be communicated clearly. 
Form can overpower, confuse, or even hide the message. Does that make sense? Okay? That's true even in speaking. If, if I spent uh, a lot of time with my relatives in the South and started speaking like they do, the, the form would be unintelligible to you. Okay? So I need to speak clearly that the form and the words match so you understand what I'm talking about. Now, the same thing is true in music. What about chords? I've read some writings of a few people, actually quite a few people. They strive to prove that there are certain forms of music that are evil in and of themselves. The same thing was done in the Middle Ages. So this is not a new debate. In fact, in the Middle Ages, because there was this confusion of form and content even back then, the scholastics of the time argued that the augmented fourth or the diminished fifth, those who are musical know what I'm talking about, those who don't, don't worry, many notes together, we'll put it that way, uh, were evil. In fact, what they called them was, it's the devil in music. And so they wouldn't play those notes. And because of that, even to, to, to this point in time, in church music, you have a lot of tritones instead of too many notes together. But where in Scripture do you find anything that would say something like, thou shalt not play too many notes together that they may not clash? I'm sorry, it's not in there. You have resounding and clashing symbols in there, but you don't have anything like that. Consider the, uh, the style of music that is common to the Middle East. To most of us, if we hear something from there or from India, you know, it sounds really weird and kind of grating. We're not used to it, but they think this is wonderful. There's no verse where there is a devil's chord. It doesn't exist. What does Scripture say? We're going to go through these pretty fast. Psalm 33, verse 3 tells us to sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. Psalm 66, verse 1, says, Make a joyful noise unto God. The same things occurs in Psalm 81, 1, 93, 4, 95, 1 and 2, 98, 6, 100, verse 1, and we could even put a lot more in there, of making a joyful noise unto God. Now, noise is from a Hebrew word, Teruah, or the bass is ruah, and it's used to describe, as I put up here on the screen, it's the sound of trumpets, or people shouting for all sorts of reasons. They may be shouting in joy, they may be shouting in alarm. It's even used for a war cry. That's a noise, isn't it? And yet we find, like Psalm 98, verse 4, tells us to make a joyful noise in the Lord all the earth, and then adds, make a loud noise. So make a joyful, loud noise. This uses the word uh, pasach, which uh, is used to describe the sound of something breaking. Make a loud noise. Something breaking? Well, that may be how some of us sing, but yes, God wants that. And I don't think anyone here would describe the sound of something breaking as harmonious. And yet it's pleasing to God if it's given to Him, if it's done in His honor, in His praise. I think it should be then very clear. There's no such thing as a devil chord or a sound that in itself is inherently evil. All types of sound, loud sounds, soft sounds, clear sounds, noisy sounds, all these different things are used to praise the Lord. It is the context of usage and purpose that brings about any evil associated with forms of music. Okay? So you have to be thinking about this, not just this is good and that's bad. You've got to think through 
What is the context? What's the message? What's its purpose? It is the message conveyed that is evil, not the form itself, which is non-moral and can be used for good, evil, or it can be neutral. The same principle applies to secular music as it does to sacred music. The debate should not be about the genre of music you listen to, though some forms lend themselves more easily to, to an, either an evil or a, a, a holy purpose, but it is the message being conveyed by both the words and the form. Okay? What about instruments? Some have argued that there are certain instruments that should not be used in worship. Now, that's usually because those instruments have an association, at least this person puts it in their mind, it has an association with something evil. What is that association? For example, guitars and drums are often associated by people with rock music and barroom. And so, since associated with that, they say, those are evil. Anybody ever hear that? Well, I have. I guess I'm around more pastors' conferences, and the fact that we have a drum set up here, I'd have pastors criticizing me that we have a drum set. We have gone liberal because we have a drum set sitting on the stage. Okay? They, it's inherently evil to them. But that argument is and always has been extremely weak. Now, the very people that will claim that a guitar and a drum is an evil will say that an organ is a wonderful, sacred instrument. Where were the organs first played? Ancient Rome. It's an old instrument. In the Colosseums, as Christians were being put to death. Guilt by association? Somehow I think that's a little more negative association than the fact that someone uses it to play rock and roll or might use a guitar in a, in a bar, right? But yet, organ is sacred to them. Let me add that the organs that are in many of these churches, where they came from, many of you may not know this, uh, in the period of time of silent film, theaters quickly got organs because it was expensive to have a whole orchestra. So you had someone playing organ with the silent film. Well, when talkies came, who needed an organ? It was a relic. So they were sold very inexpensively by all these theaters to churches who bought them up cheaply to put them in their sanctuary to play. So then these same people that say guitar and drum, they're evil, are also the ones who say that theaters are evil. So now they have an organ that comes from the evil theater playing in their church. You see, if you're not careful, your hypocrisy shows. We need to be very careful how we attack these things. Guilt by association? Be very careful. Or again, your hypocrisy is going to become evident. Well, what does the scripture say? The Bible actually mentions quite a few various instruments that are all used to praise the Lord. Now, there are idiophones. And no, those aren't phones that are played by idiots, okay? Idiophones, not idiot phones. Idiophones. These are things that are made of naturally uh, sonorous materials. Things that you could clang together and they'd make a, a noise. Most often metal. For example, cymbals. Psalm 150, verse 5. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Uh, wood pieces could be beaten together. Yes, castanets. 2 Samuel 6, verse 5. So you have that. You could put uh, something in, in, a, in a gourd and shake it. Uh, there were bells. Bells were crafted. In fact, golden bells were crafted to hang along the hem of the, uh, the robe that was worn by the high priest so that he, as he walked, he tinkled. Okay? You just hear him wherever he goes. That was done. Exodus 28, verse 33. All sorts of instruments. There, uh, there are aerophones. These are wind instruments. There are pipes, Zechariah 4.12. Uh, 
uh, flute, Psalm 87.7, horns, Psalm 98.6, and horns are made from all sorts of different materials, including uh, ram horns, you know, blowing through a, an animal thing. All sorts of horns. Then there's the, uh, the trumpet, right? Aren't we waiting for a trumpet to sound? I am, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and we're gone. We're waiting for that trumpet. Then there are uh, membranophones. Okay, now, Stephen, listen up, okay? This is for you. Okay, drum types of instruments. There are different kinds of these things. It comes from a, uh, the Hebrew uh, top or the Greek uh, tupanon. It's often translated as timbrel. And these were instruments where they would take a piece of leather and they would stretch it over a wooden frame, often held in the hand, and they'd be banging on it. You can think of tambourine, okay? Drums. This instrument uh, is in uh, Psalm 100 and uh, Exodus 15:20. Miriam is dancing with these things. Psalm 150, verse 4, we're using it as well. Then there are various types of chordophones. These are stringed instruments. There are lutes. Psalm 92, verse 3. A lute is a... Um, a, a it's a, an instrument where the strings are stretched along a neck attached to a resonating body. That'd be like a guitar. Okay, that would be a lute. Then there are harps, Psalm 13.2. That have a neck at an angle to the body. And then there are lyres. That's a body that has two arms joined by a cross piece and the strings are between the cross piece and, and the body of the instrument. So lyres. These are all stringed instruments. Uh, it should also be pointed out that all these instruments were common in the surrounding cultures. They were all used in the worship of pagan deities, but they were also used in the worship of God. So they could either be used as a blessing or a curse. Worship of false gods or the worship of the true God. So if we're going to classify things as being evil themselves simply because evil people use them for evil purposes, then there's not going to be hardly anything left. But I don't think there's anything left. Every kind of musical instrument has been used by evil people for evil purposes. And those same instruments have been used by people to praise and honor God. They can be used for a blessing. They could be used for a curse. So musical instruments really are no different than our tongue. James 3.10 tells us that our tongue can be used to bless or to curse. Either way. Ammonium nitrate can be used as a fertilizer. It helps crops grow and you can eat the produce of it. Or if you have someone evil, they will use it as a uh, part of making a bomb to cause mass destruction. It is not the instrument. It is what you do with it. Now, having said all that, it's still important to ask about what identification you make with the music because the principles of Romans 14 still apply. There may be styles of music that you personally identify so much with that which is evil, you cannot be around it or listen to it even if other people can there's just too much of an evil association with it. Don't violate your conscience, Romans 14.23. Remember that principle, we've talked about it. Don't violate your conscience. You can't handle it, get away from it. At the same time, you may have a stronger conscience here. You may see you have freedom, but you've got to be sensitive to your weaker brother. You need to love your weaker brother. What are his thoughts and feelings? Be careful of using your freedom to tromp and uh, tread down a weaker brother. Also be careful here that you don't use your freedom as a covering for your sinful desires. We've talked about that principle in the past already too. Just because you have freedom to do something 
does not mean it is the best thing to do or even the right thing to do. Why do you like that style? What's your own personal identification with that style of music? Is it a godly identification? An ungodly identification? Is it something neutral? Okay? There's also rhythms. This is for you too, Stephen, because drummer's got rhythm. He can keep it going and I can't. So you got me. Now, there are articles I've read that said certain rhythms are inherently evil. Now, our lives are filled with all sorts of rhythms. Think about it. Clocks tick. Electric motors hum. I can hear one now. Right? There's a hum. Machines clank. Bees buzz. Your heart beats. And you walk at a pace. Rhythms are all part of life. Again, it is the context of uses that determines whether it's good or evil. An example. Adolf Hitler understood very well and carefully calculated repeated shoutings of Zig Heil for a purpose. It got the whole audience worked up into hysteria. But that same kind of rhythm is used at ball games to encourage the home team to go out and do better and win. It's the context, isn't it? Alexander the Great used a march cadence to get his troops to go great distances. But so has every other army, including the colonial army of the American Revolution. Every army does that. Joshua used a rhythmic shouting to bring down the walls of Jericho according to the Lord's command. So, there is no devil's beat. It doesn't exist. There are no devil's cord. The form is in itself non-moral. The question is not the form, but its usage in communicating what type of message. In the field of what's called psychoacoustics, which studies the effects of sounds on human behavior, there is ample evidence that are certain rhythms or beats used repetitiously, used loudly, have negative effects. Now, my favorite example of this, and this comes from my, my background as an agricultural biologist, is one where they, in a greenhouse, same growing conditions, the only thing they changed was what music was played? One greenhouse, they played classical music and things flourished. Just said great. The other one, they played heavy rock and all the plants died. Now that seems like, well, why? It's because the rhythm, the loudness, the sound actually destroys the cell structure. It kills it. Now that shouldn't be too surprising for us. If you took a group of teenagers and you took them to a classical music conference... Well, that'd be pretty tough, but you took them to a classical music conference, okay, one night, and the next night you took them to a rock concert. You tell me what their behavior is going to be like on each night, okay? The music has an effect on you. It has an effect on all of us. Consider that composers spend a great deal of time and energy in trying to produce music that is going to move you emotionally in certain ways. And they know the various elements that make up music can stimulate different moods within most people. And so we will classify music. Some music is upbeat. It's, uh, it's exciting. Other music is calming. It's serene. Some music you want to listen to when you have a headache. It's calming. Other music you want to listen to when you have to do chores and want to just keep going. Okay? You all know what I'm talking about. But even with all this, we should not label certain sounds as evil in and of themselves because they're not. Paul writes in Romans 14, 14, and we studied this some months ago, but it's a a principle we need to understand. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing 
is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. It's not the object itself. It's not the, the form itself. It's what is going to be done with it in your own thoughts about it. But that is really nothing more than an expansion of what Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 15 through 23. This is the passage where Jesus is talking uh, to his disciples about what they could or could not eat. The uh, Pharisees were accusing them of being defiled because they had not washed their hands properly before they ate. And Jesus said, There is nothing outside the man which is going to can defile him, but things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Why? It's because what comes out is what comes out of the heart of the man. And out of that heart proceed evil thoughts and fornication and thefts and murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. The evil's in here. It's not the form. It's the evil in man's heart that comes out. John Murray well stated it this way. This principle, referring to Mark 7, Romans 14, this principle is the refutation of all prohibitionism which lays the responsibility for wrong at the door of things rather than at man's heart. The issue is not the style of music, it's the heart. Why do you want to listen to that? What are you after from it? Don and Dave Wordson comment, it would be much simpler if some musical sounds were evil in themselves. Just eliminate the evil sounds, the entire moral problem in music would be solved. The morality or immorality of the uh, sounds needs to be located in the hearts of the composer, the performer, and the listener. Notice all of them. The composer, who wrote it, the performer, who is playing it, and the listener, not in the music itself. So the problem is not the sound itself, it's the evil hearts of men. Evil people take sounds and they arrange them in a way to fulfill their purpose in striving to promote evil. Such people understand form and use it wisely to accent the communication of their evil message. Now there are other people, they're ignorant of form, they're ignorant of content. They simply take a sound because for whatever reason, they like it. And therefore, they don't really understand the effect it may be having on others. They may not even understand the message that's being communicated. For these people, form and style drive the music, not the message. Think about that in secular music. How often have you found yourself singing some secular song because you've heard it over and over and then suddenly realize the words you're singing? And they're pretty raunchy. Because it's the form and style has got you caught up and you haven't even registered what's the content, what the message is. It's for those two reasons that it's extremely important that music used in worship is very carefully considered before it's used. And the Christian must consider these same factors in any kind of music we listen to, no matter what kind of style you like. What is the message? Now, there's some cautions we need to heed. First of all, Understand that music is extremely powerful. Chuck Fromm, he's the editor of Worship Leader magazine, wrote a very thought-provoking article entitled Taking Music Off the Throne, acknowledging the, he called it the Z factor. Now, the article repeated and expanded on some of the cautions Zwingli gave in the mid-1500s. Zwingli was one of the three great reformers. Zwingli led the Swiss Reformation, um, Calvin then kind of followed him, but he came from France. And then Luther, they all lived the same period of time. And the Reformation occurred under the leadership of these men. 
But Zwingli, among these three men, was, was the only one that really understood music because he had been a professional musician. That was his background. And he feared so much the power of music that he banned musical instruments in the use of worship. And that's interesting. Uh, the, the Mennonite groups and stuff that don't play it, they come out of the Swiss Reformation. That's their origin. And it's Zwingli that did this. In fact, he even insisted that in Ephesians 5.19, where Paul talks about making melody in your heart, that Paul meant exactly that. You're to make melody only in your heart and never out, out loud. Because he was so fearful of it. Uh, it's tribute to him that he said that, or one of his followers, that when the devil fell out of heaven, he fell in the choir loft. That's how much that he feared music, because it's so powerful. He, like most good musicians, they understand music can move us emotionally in very strong ways. Now, if it's used correctly, it can enhance our worship experience. It can enhance our ability to really focus in and worship our God. If used incorrectly, it can destroy exactly that. Now, Fromm's first Z-factor caution applies here. Music often hides rather than reveals truth. It is prone to enchantment, not communication. If the form does not match the message, the message is garbled or lost. And that works both ways. A good message can be lost and a bad message could be encouraged. Let me give you some examples of the latter and then the former. Uh, when we were still living in L.A., there used to be a station I loved to listen to. I listened to it all the time because it would play popular music with orchestra. And it was just or orchestrations of popular music. And I enjoyed it very, very, very much. And one day they changed format on me. And instead of playing orchestrated versions, they were starting to play the originals, which meant now the lyrics were being in there. And I continued to listen because I was used to listening to these songs. But it took a while to figure out what the words were. And the more I realized what the words were, the more shocked I was. Because so often what the lyrics were, they were crass, they were selfish, they were glorifying evil. The message was exactly opposite of the emotion I had listening to the orchestrated versions. The music itself hid really something that was evil. I had pleasure listening to the melody line, but the form did not match the message. In worship, there are well-written and played pieces of music that can hide in name even heretical lyrics that accompany it. Many songs and choruses fit that category. A good melody overcomes lousy lyrics. Fromm's Z-factor corollary here is that contemporary choruses have reduced corporate singing to mindless babble, making live the scriptural injunction to sing with the mind also, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And let's face it, a lot of choruses do that. It is mindless babble, just a, a repetition of nothing. And while there is some great worship music being written today, and there is, there's some wonderful stuff, a lot of it is either so shallow or so repetitious, it is practically meaningless. It really comes down to this. Shallow theology produces shallow worship regardless of how good the musical form. See, true worship takes some thought about God. But it's not just choruses that have lyric problems. Close examination of popular hymns reveal theological aberrations and, yes, even heresy. Even our own hymn book, there is a uh, number 336. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's sung in a lot of fundamental churches. Growing up, we sang that just about every communion. 
But there's a problem here. There is no fountain filled with blood. There are those that have taken, and it's based on this song and a couple that are like it, and they believe that when Jesus died and his blood was shed, and understand it's a bloody thing. He's bleeding from his head. He's bleeding from his back. The cross is stained with his blood. And you can be sure some of it was dripping on the ground. They actually believe all this blood was supernaturally vacuumed up. It now exists in heaven in a fountain that when you sin, you're plunged back under that spiritually to be cleansed of your sin. And they believe that. I had to fight that heresy some years ago. Uh, Why? Because you had a writer, a hymn writer, take an analogy that distorted truth and it made false doctrine. And we learn a lot of our doctrine by what we sing. So it's not just choruses and those little ditties. Yes, even major hymns. Now, there are also the opposite. There are songs with very good words and themes that are not matched musically. I think one that some of you would be aware of is um, they will know we are Christians by our love. You know know what I'm talking about. You know, the words of that are wonderful. Straight from Scripture. Beautiful theme. But the music is a dirge. It is so sad. So you have this wonderful upbeat. They're going to know we're Christians by our great love for each other and let's be sad about it. It doesn't match. And that's why I never sing it. Okay? Joyful theme. Form is sad. Now, there are also a lot of songs that you've never heard because they're sitting on somebody's shelf. Great, theologically good words, well-crafted, but the music is so poor, no one wants to sing them. So great lyrics with poor music leaves a song on the shelf instead of enhancing worship. Now, put those two together. You have to have a match here, don't you? Good theology, good words with good music can enhance our worship. We need to understand that music is meant to communicate thought and emotion. The individual words and the lyrics of a song are neutral in themselves. It is the arrangement of them that is going to communicate a message that is either good or evil. Same thing is true with the various elements that make up music. The rhythm, the tempo, the melody, the harmony, the volume. They are as important to communicating of that message as the lyrics. The individual parts are neutral in themselves, but the arrangement is done to communicate a message, often emotional, that may be good or bad. The quality of music is determined by how well it communicates the message. So you can judge music. How well is it communicating the message? The moral value of the music is how well is it reflecting the moral character of God. So is it good or bad morally? How is it reflecting godliness? What is the moral character of that message? Now, we're going to be looking at that more next week because we as Christians need to carefully consider the message in light of the commands and precepts of God, of God's Word. Now, when it comes to sacred music, lyric and form must fit together to fulfill its purpose in worship. And we've got to consider who is even here, who is present, so that we then choose music and we will use a lot of variety here, don't we? Uh, we have choruses. We have different styles in the choruses. We use hymns and different styles in the hymns. Our goal is to pick that which is going to best uh, mesh together for a total uh, thematic presentation of something so we can worship better our God. I chose Psalm 150 uh, today for 
leading us into this because it talks about music. We try and craft that together. We want to move you towards a greater worship of our God. He is worthy of it. He is worthy of our effort. But no matter how hard we work at picking out the right songs and putting all that together, there's a part you play. Because this is not about what I like. It's not about what Stephen likes or John likes or Tracy likes. We're not picking out just what we like. We're trying to craft this together. But there's a part you must play in this. You must come prepared to worship. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter what we do. You will judge us on how well you liked it or not. Your personal taste, your personal preferences. And you will not have worshipped God. You have been critiquing those who are worshipping God. Because that's what we're striving to do. Scott Smith gave in his article a very well worth quote that makes us contemplate if we're really wanting to truly worship God. Have we become those who worship worship more than we worship God? Do we enjoy our own forms more than we fear God? Do we show more passion in defending our style of worship than we do in obeying and serving Him? Are we more agitated by what other Christians like about their worship than we are grieved over our own sin and foolish hearts? Are we more resolved to control the worship service in our churches than we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit in our relationships? Is it God that we adore or simply ourselves that we serve? Let's ponder these things long and hard because the glory of God is all that's at stake. Let's pray. Father, Again, we thank you for your word, its principles, its precepts. They challenge us to think deeply about our lives in every area. And though this morning we have concentrated on the use of music and worship, and Father, I admit it, it's a wonderful study to see how many different ways you will accept our praise of you. And we're amazed that you would even accept it at all, and yet... in so many diverse forms. You want your people to be joyful over their relationship with you. And yet, Father, these same principles we understand must go into every area of our life for there is no dichotomy between secular and sacred. We are Christians full-time. And all that we do should be done in a way that is pleasing to you, that's complementary to the principles you give us in your word. Father, not things that would be detrimental to our own spiritual walk. Father, I would ask your spirit to prod us in all these areas, both as we come daily to, or weekly to worship you here together, as we worship you daily in our own homes, or as we're driving to work or whatever we're doing. But Father, also that we would be challenged to think through this in all our areas of life. That we'd be thinking people people who think deeply about you and about what we do, that we might present not just an outward form that would appear to be godly, but more importantly, a heart that truly is striving for godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.